Welcome to the Sports Innovation Podcast, presented by the IUPUI Sports Innovation Institute, located right here in beautiful downtown Indianapolis. I'm your host, Dr. Jeff Sherman, a full-time faculty member within the Sport Management Program here at IUPUI and a professional sports statistician here in Indianapolis. The Sports Innovation Podcast is designed to highlight innovative practitioners and scholars throughout sport and education to learn new and thought-provoking ways to improve our industry together. Thank you for listening to the Sports Innovation Podcast. Welcome to the Sports Innovation Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jeff Sherman, and my guest today is Dr. Tim Koba from High Point University in High Point, North Carolina. Dr. Koba is an assistant professor of sport management at High Point and earned his PhD from the University of South Carolina. Tim, how are you doing today? Jeff, I'm doing great. Really appreciate you talking to me today and allowing me to come on, talk a little about research, talk a little bit about what finance and sport looks like. It's always one of my favorite things to talk about. So it's nice and sunny here in North Carolina. It's always a good day. Not so much in Indiana. We'll just put it that <laughs> way right now. So Dr. Koba recently published his research entitled Making an Exit, Factors Determining a Successful Private Equity or Venture Capital Exit in Sport Businesses in our Sports Innovation Journal. And I'd like to spend some time discussing his research to bring a deeper insight into the area in which he has now shed some light for us. So, uh, Tim, I, don't mind me if I call you Tim. Please do. Tim, tell me a little bit about your research interests and your research line. I mean, you've obviously mentioned finance, you've mentioned you know venture capital in your article, but what led you there? So it's actually a super interesting question. So when I started out my current sports, um, I was that person in high school knew exactly what they wanted to do and had injured my knee in high school and went into university doing athletic training and knew I wanted to be involved on the athletic side of the industry. And so I started working in fitness or working in sports medicine, started working in athletics and realized within six months, I wanted to be in charge. <laughs> and so from there, I spent a lot of time reading self-reading management, self-reading finance, understanding what the management side was, and then stumbled upon my sport management master's degree, loved it, went into the PhD realm, and really it was about understanding that business aspect, which is a, a super funny transition. And so I kind of always have to, to bring that story in. And what I have always found fascinating about finance is trying to understand how we make decisions how decisions are made in terms of the, the financial aspect. And I've always found the idea of investing to be interesting, right? So you have this idea, have a vision, someone else has this vision and they need capital to get it to grow, right? We want to, when we want to retire at some point in the future, we want to invest our money and have some kind of a nest egg. And so all of that kind of brought me into kind of what I looked at in terms of research right now being how is sport an investment vehicle? What is it about sport that drives investment? And so we see this at professional levels, especially right now with all the major leagues across not only U.S. but internationally, opening up minority interests for venture capital and private equity. And I said, that's great at that level. That makes sense. But what is this environment looking like for, for us, especially our students who have these ideas? How can they attract businesses and money to help grow their idea from an idea to an actual larger business. And so that's kind of 
my long way of approaching that, what that journey has been like in terms of now looking at well, how is the sport industry a vehicle for investment for both the founders and people who provide that capital. So in this innovation space, Tim, have you noticed different, I guess, different types of sport businesses? If you're looking at teams, but teams are one thing. When it comes down to it, you're looking at products or services that may be necessary or may not be necessary. What were you running into in your research? What kind of things you, you found, what was it, 12,000-ish businesses, right, in your in your research? So what were you running into as far as what they were actually selling? So one of the challenges with looking at investments is that they're private companies. And so access to information is really difficult. If it's a publicly traded company, it's super easy. We can go on CNBC, Google Finance, Yahoo Finance, a plethora of, of databases to get access. But when it's private, we're really limited. And so I have been using Crunchbase, which kind of collects it and tries to aggregate information related to to private businesses and PitchBook does something similar. And when we're looking through, and there was 12,400 and something-ish from 2010 through 2020 is when the study was looking at, and it was international companies. And they run the gamut. So you've got some in there that went on to become a, an IPO, publicly traded company. So Peloton's one of them. Some of them are in the fitness space. So if you're familiar with Zwift, which was doing cycling, and so that company is included in that database. And then there's a whole bunch of companies just across the sports spectrum. And when we think of sport and all of its broad, full aspects, we have got fitness, we've got the nutritional aspect for sport performance. There's several yoga studios. There's a whole plethora of businesses. And what's interesting is you get the ones that are large, and clearly have a growth aspect to it. And you also on that site was some businesses were small, local, it was just a, a one room studio, but they were trying to acquire capital and had just managed to get themselves into crunch base, trying to match up with an investor. And so it really ran the gamut. And what makes it challenging is how do you weed out the ones that are local and small? First, the ones that are going to be more attractive in terms of being able to grow and provide that vehicle for both the founders, both the members, and for the investment community in terms of, of realizing a larger um, investment opportunity. So in your, in your research, you mentioned that they make choices between uh, the venture capitalists or private equity firms make choices between what is a good investment potentially and what isn't what do you think their decision process there is and i'm asking this because I'm, I'm kind of leading down a path a little bit here yeah so i think that's a great question and that's actually something i would love to look into for future work articles is taking a step back from the quantitative aspect and trying to understand what those factors are and finding people who invest in the sport industry and asking them that question what is it that they're looking for how do they make those decisions in general if someone's pitching you an idea and you're going to be providing some kind of capital you're ultimately looking for a return and offsetting the risk of that failing versus the potential for that growing and achieving some type of an exit and so decision makers are looking to see across all their investments or whatever that portfolio looks like 
is this going to be an opportunity that may lead to something greater or is there just not a, de a defined idea? Is it just a too competitive of a space? Do they just not have a differentiation articulated enough to separate themselves from everyone else? Do they just not have a revenue model that I can see being a way to make money? And so those opportunities they shy away from because there's no defined aspect. And so they're really looking to see, is this idea that someone's presenting to me something that I can see working out or that I could help in terms of being a mentor to help get it to growing over time. With that said, right, explain the difference. And, and people can get this from, from your research. So, you know, I will plug that later, but they can get that from your research, but explain to me the difference. What's private equity versus venture capital? And in your research, you explain when those two things are, I guess there's a kind of a, a, a line of delineation between when private equity and when venture capital. Explain that to me a little bit. Kind of define those a little bit for me. So I think globally, private equity is more of that global umbrella term for investment. And then angel investing is another umbrella under private equity. And so essentially, it's looking at being an investment group that is taking money on behalf of other people, right? They're investors and they're, they're the professional manager. And then they're responsible for identifying those opportunities. And so venture capitalists really look at early startups, trying to get in as early as possible because that has the greatest potential for growth and investment when they work out. So the venture capital world is super risky <laughs> and one in eight, nine, 10 investments made may come to a larger exit opportunity, right? So that's the exiting aspect that's so interesting. And so venture cap is really looking at getting into an initial investment and providing kind of that, that initial seed money to grow it. And then you get a larger ownership stake. Whereas private equity is kind of more of a an all encompassing term, but they'll take on investments into aging companies and so they'll look at companies that possibly are running into management issues or running into debt issues, and they try to take them over and figure out, A, how do I provide money and, and expertise to get them to grow versus, unfortunately, are the sums worth less than the individual parts, in which case I can sell them off and make a profit that way. And so there's different avenues by which they do it, and some of them raise money from Investors, some of them borrow a lot of money, sort of the leverage buyouts for private equity. If you've heard that term, that's using a lot of borrowed money to buy a company to then sell it off in pieces. But essentially, venture capital is just one aspect of private anti of, a, of a of a private investment firm. So it's just they have a much narrower idea of how they look into that investment opportunity. So the focus of your research article in the journal is on exiting. You've mentioned Correct. it a couple of times here. And obviously, if you read the article, which we hope you all do, it's going to be defined for you. But tell me a little bit more about exiting, right? Private equity, venture capital. Tell me a little bit about what is the exit strategy and at what point do they want to try to employ that? So the exit is when the investor sees a return on that investment. And so that exit opportunity is 
the at the back of the mind because we think of that return on investment. At some point, when you provide capital to a founder, to a company, whether that's as an investor, whether that's in your 401k, whether it's in a defined contribution plan, at some point, you're going to want to see growth and return. So the exit is when you realize that return. And so exiting in investments is when you sell. In startups or in small businesses, ultimately, what your hope is, is you're going to hit that home run to use their sport analogy, right? In sport management, you hit the home run and that company gets either bought by a much larger company or becomes a publicly traded company. And so an example of a company that was an idea that grew, Peloton, right? It was an idea, we grow it, we take it to, to market, it becomes a publicly traded company. And that is when all the initial investors realize a large windfall in terms of a return on that investment. So an IPO is kind of the, holy grail of an exit. Other exits that are viable are being bought by larger companies, either as a merger acquisition. And so that idea is the investor helps the business grow to become attractive to another business, and then that business gets bought out. And so use an example of, of a merger acquisition that we can all kind of wrap our heads around, not in the sport realm, is back when they were Facebook, Meta buying Instagram. It's so Instagram was a competitor, was growing. Facebook bought it. And so that purchase provided an exit to those initial investors. And so that exit strategy is really about how we realize that return. And in venture cap and private equity, that's in the, at, the, at the back of the mind. If you are providing capital, you need to have a way of realizing a return. And that exit is what that looks like. And so they want companies that can grow and become attractive either for a public market sale or to be bought by someone else. And so that decision is actually thought about at the beginning of the investment. So if you're pitching an idea to private venture, private capital, they want to know how likely am I to see a return? You might have a great idea, but if it can't grow, it can't scale. We can't make it attractive in the future. I can't invest in that. Now, that's not to say you can't get funding from other sources for your idea, but in terms of tracking of tracking that type of, of investment, that's really what they're looking for. Do I see a pathway to realizing a return on this capital? Now, you make it sound as if that's the, that's the you called it the holy grail, right? And you make it sound as if that is the only end-all be-all for a venture capitalist or a, or a, a private equity firm. Is that it, or do they sometimes stay with that company and become a high-level minority owner or potentially become the majority owner? So a lot of the times, those investments, once once those are being made, the idea is you want to be able to see those those grow for those, for those potential exit opportunities. And if you're holding on to your investment and you're working toward that goal if they're if you're not able to identify an opportunity to see a return then you look at possibly selling out so some initial investors say listen i've been with you for several years we're just not seeing a path forward i need to use this money elsewhere and so they'll sell to another private group um others will try making changes because usually they're on the board of directors or in a mentorship role and they'll try making changes in the business to help move it move it forward and so it really just kind of depends upon the relationship that's built within 
those investment groups and those organizations in terms of what pathway they seem working forward and moving forward. And other ways that um, an exit can occur that's a little bit less common in terms of the investment strategy for the investment groups is sometimes the initial owner buys back their company. Right? Sometimes, unfortunately, there's not a path forward and companies fold, they go under, they just don't have a differentiated product. And so they're, they're unsuccessful. And so sometimes those folds are an exit, just not one that we <laughs> like to see. Yeah, not the positive exit, right? That we not want the, the, exit. The, the, the the increase in the bank account as opposed to the decrease, right? You mentioned right. you mentioned briefly though that the buyback can that happen in, I guess, in good cases. Do, do VCs sell back to the original owner the the share if they have made enough money? Occasionally, yeah, occasionally, or sometimes the. Um... Once again, those are the different groups. And so sometimes the initial owner will want to retain as much ownership decision-making as possible. And so they'll look at other investors or other funding mechanisms to get the money by back control. And so that that's another avenue. It's just a little bit harder to generate that kind of capital to do that. But once again, it's working when you're having the investors at that level, especially at the venture capital realm, where they're really looking at helping a startup grow. They're... It's more than just a, I have your money, I'm going to try putting it to work. It's, well, we want to be the steward of what this capital looks like is the venture capital has partners that they're responsible for. And so they want to create partnerships. And so a lot of the times those partnerships are, how do we see a path forward? What do we need to do? What can, can I support you in terms of the founder being able to, to grow and look at different markets? And it's leveraging those other resources, not just that, that financial capital resource. So where do we see, and you're, you're in an interesting area in high point, and I'm not sure where that intersects with the research triangle or not, cause I'm not, you know, 100% mm -hmm. geographically savvy, but when it comes down to it, Indianapolis is a city that has been focusing on sports, startups, founders, and, and trying to bring that technology or whatever they are doing, the startups are doing into our city. Is the same thing happening where you're at? Is this a current trend in and out of sports? So High Point, we're located in what's called the Piedmont Triad. So it's we have Winston-Salem close by, Greensboro, and then High Point creates kind of that, that triad, whereas the research triangle over toward the Raleigh Chapel Hill area is a little bit more to our east. And then Charlotte's about an hour and a half south of where we are. But there is, in general, a lot of effort being put on innovation and creating different hubs. And so a lot of campuses, High Point's one of them, so we have a, an entrepreneur aspect on, on the campus to help students who want to become an entrepreneur, who have an idea, to kind of start thinking about how they can grow it. And then a lot of communities are looking into how can we foster these? Because we want to create an environment that is stimulating, that's going to attract people and money into our area. And so a lot of, of cities are looking to see how they can make partnerships with universities, with startups, with larger businesses to kind of create those innovative hubs that, um, that kind of pop up. Which leads me to my next thought. So the city of Indianapolis has got the Techstar Sports Accelerator in it. 
And now we've added something called Sports Tech HQ. Where do you see the impact of those types of organizations? Now, I know that they want to help startups, help founders, but what do you see that? Do you see that happening across the board, across the nation in terms of people trying to set up shop like that in cities to try to build the, I guess, tech sector or the startup sector? I think we've seen a trend nationally in terms of looking at doing that in various aspects. So uh, prior to moving to South Carolina, we live in Ithaca, right? So Cornell is right there. And so there is a, a rather large tech startup infrastructure and, and culture within Ithaca. And I think that we see this kind of in across different areas. I was just in, in up with my wife in Boston last weekend. It was over in Bridge. And so MIT's got a bunch of different accelerators and hubs and Harvard University is obviously right there. And so do you see these draws all over the place? I think what's interesting and something to keep in mind is how does a single city or, or region attract what they're trying to grow? And so what's interesting about Indianapolis in terms of the sports stuff, that makes sense. We have quite a few national governing bodies. We see NCAA, but not only that, we have several other Olympic sports have a national body within Indianapolis. So you have these decision makers already right there. You have a bunch of universities in close proximity. And so it creates this opportunity to build relationships and connections that merge really well within what it ends up being the culture of that city. I think that's what makes certain hubs and certain accelerators a little bit more successful is that it's kind of a merging of what's there in the city what's there within the educational community, what's there within the entrepreneurial community. And it's all of these different groups coming together in ways of solving problems in unique ways from those different perspectives. Hey listeners, just a quick time out and we'll get right back to today's episode. The Sports Innovation Journal is currently accepting submissions. If you're seeking a place to publish your innovative ideas and research on the sport industry, then consider submitting your work to the Sports Innovation Journal. The Sports Innovation Journal is an open access journal targeting the practitioners seeking answers to the most common questions and problems in the industry. We're always looking for submissions from researchers who are identifying and studying those questions and problems. If you're interested in publishing your work in or serving as a reviewer for the Sports Innovation Journal, please visit the link in the notes or contact Dr. David Pierce, the editor of the SIJ and director of the IUPUI Sports Innovation Institute at dpierce3 at iupui.edu. That's D-P-I-E-R-C-E-3 at iupui.edu. Now let's get back to today's episode of the Sports Innovation Podcast. Now I have to ask the question, SVB, all the controversy surrounding that, does that, is that going to be a bleed over effect do you think to some of these startup founders other than the ones that directly were invested in svb right with their their money do you see this as being people maybe becoming a little bit more hesitant to try to start a company or how do you see that coming down so in the last several weeks and months and over the last year so when we take a step back and what makes the time frame from 2010 to 2020 so interesting is super low interest rates and so if we think of the relationship with investment risk and return in a low interest rate environment, you're not able to get a return in safer investment havens. 
And so you're looking to take out a little bit more risk. And so we saw this influx in lots of investing, not only into startups, but also into public markets and other areas. And then obviously crypto was a part of that. And as interest rates rise, those alternative areas become more attractive. And so part of that has been, there's been a pullback in investing capital in general the last couple of years is rates are rising. So companies are a bit more hesitant. I know a couple of companies were looking to go public and then because of the poor performance with several others that went public and then immediately had their price drop, those initial founders and their syndicates and their investors and their investment banks are hesitant to follow through on that. And so that pulls back in a global sense. So I think that in an environment that is a little bit more uncertain with not only just the rising rates, but is there an uncertainty of a recession? It's people are a little bit more wary of where they're putting their money. I think in terms of the SVB, what makes that so interesting is we think of, of banks obviously as being risk averse and SVB actually had a lot of very low risk investments that became a risk when rates rose that wouldn't have been a problem except when people start asking for money and all of a sudden they have to sell those assets. And so I think a lot of it comes into keeping an, an eye on what's happening and really reminding us of the importance of diversification and having a, a portfolio that can, is, has exposure to those multiple areas. Yeah, I was thinking that same thing when I'm when people have asked me about it. I just I just explained to them, yeah, diversify. <laughs> diversify. I teach sport finance, and, and not at the level like you, but uh, I teach sport finance, and I and people have asked me about it, and I just look at them and I just say, just diversify portfolio. Get get something that has little risk and do some medium and do some high. Right, simple as that. I guess if you want to call it simple. Uh, so. I took you a little bit away from your, 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 your research a little bit, but I'm looking at your discussion and you talk about um, female founders mm -hmm. and there's not really any research on female founders. And I kind of want to get it. Why do you think that is? And what do you think can change that? So this is female founders specifically to sport. So I will I will add that. And um, so I actually had a, a previous paper which was looking at, at adventure capital. And in general, across industry sectors, there is less investment into women founders. And that so this is a whole other research area that I think would be really interesting to look into because sports kind of interesting in that women founders are able to attract a little bit higher percent of capital in sport-related industries as opposed to the venture capital world as a whole. And I think there's some, across the board, I think there's some things that contribute to that. Part of it is if we look at who's comprising a lot of the investment firms, we don't see enough women representation. And so women decision makers aren't there. And I think that venture capital and banks have been looking at this saying, we need to do a better job. And that's going to be something that's going to change fundamentally within that community. An another aspect is other researchers have, have said that when a female versus a male founder is pitching an idea, they receive different questions. And so the questions that are posed to male founders tend to be growth related. Well, how do you see this growing? How do you see this making money? And female founders seem to be 
put on the defensive? And well, how are you going to manage the risks? And so when you're focused on the risk mitigation aspect, it's forcing the conversation in a way that is detracting from the opportunity and making those risks a little more prevalent. And so part of it is just the, the questions that they're being posed. And then the, the follow-up is if there's more representation in terms of the people controlling money, does that change how those questions are and does it open up opportunities? And so we've seen it from the investment side, a lot more startups, A, a lot more investment firms, sorry, are focusing in on sport as a viable alternative. We're also seeing a lot more women and minority started firms that want to focus on women and minority founders. And I think that's a great way of providing opportunities to groups that historically haven't been able to attract a level of capital for a variety of reasons across industries, not just really the sport. So you're saying that the female founders in sport are actually receiving a higher rate? Percent. Mm -hmm. So that you're talking like the capital itself, they're getting... And it's it's higher, but if you take, if you look at some of the investment um, information regarding what the percent goes to women, it's some of them have it at 5%. So 5% of all invested capital goes to women-founded firms. So in sport, that number is, most, is closer to 10. Wow. Okay. So, and now, it's higher, but it's still a very, very, very small piece of the overall pie. And I think that that has to change if we're talking about providing opportunities and diversification from founders. We have people have great ideas, regardless of what their background is or what the relationship that they have with the businesses that have money and women, minorities, we have great, great ideas are also deserving of investment. And I think that we're starting to see the opportunities a little bit more clearly now than what had been historically. That's wild. That's wild to me to think about that, that there's way less founders, but they're getting a higher percentage. I mean, they must, do you think that the VCs are looking at them as a little bit more risk averse or risk conscious? Is that kind of why you think maybe they're putting more money in, but it's way less? Well, I think it's sport, right? So it's our, our area is a little bit more unique in its breadth, right? So technology is dominated by a lot of males. And you look at the large tech companies and who typically is in charge right now, right? We have Elon Musk, we've got Mark Zuckerberg. And so you're seeing, those types of businesses and founders, and that's who's attracting capital. And I think in sport, you realize that there's a lot more opportunity for investment that is d- deserving of, of second looks. It's, you're, we're not just talking about an actual tech company. We're talking about lifestyle brands. We're talking about sports. And so we're starting to see this happening right now with women's national soccer, right? We've got our angels coming out in, out in LA, Angel FC is getting a lot of traction in terms of investing. We're also seeing a lot of female athletes turning into investors. So Freda Williams pivoting from away currently from tennis, although we'll see if that changes versus coming back, making making another run, right? And she's running her own venture capital firm and looking to invest in women and, and minority groups. And I think that the sport world is a little bit different and that makes it, kind of a little bit more just by its nature and diverse and opportunistic. I mean, I agree with you on that. I mean, I, I look at it and I say, well, 
you know, you've got a lot of women and minorities in sport. Yeah. And now they're, they're, they've made the money to where they can start those firms and they can say, yes, we're going to invest back in you, but you just got to give us the ideas sort of thing, right? So that yeah. we can invest in you, <laughs> which is wild to me to think about. You mentioned toward the end of your piece that your findings support um, a, th- a specific theory. And I think you mentioned something about information asymmetry. Can you kind of dive into that a little bit? You talked about IPO, uh, the importance of IPOs in the exit strategy, as well as um, just the exit strategy in general. But that kind of caught me for a moment. You talked about information asymmetry closes as a company ages, making it more attractive to a potential buyer. And that's the other exit, the buying, right? Mm -hmm. So... Am I missing something or is this common sense to the layman in in, 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 in finance and venture capital? No, I think that um, different researchers over time have looked at have looked at private equity and venture capital outside of sport. And what we've noticed is that venture capital backed firms, if they're going to exit or if they're going to IPO, do it earlier in the life cycle. And so they're younger firms that have this grand vision, big idea, able to generate a large amount of revenue. And so it's those super large revenue generating opportunities that kind of get a lot of development and growth. And then as soon as they can start, you make a lot of money, great, let's take you public. So you're not profitable. So there's a ton of examples. I have a ton of fun in class pulling things up. You're not profitable, but you make a ton of money. And so this is a great opportunity for us to take it public. In term, if you're not making a ton of money, you might still be growing. You might not have profit. You may have profit, right? But then it's going to take longer to be as attractive as a public investment. And so the information asymmetry is looking at the difference between those on the inside and those looking from the outside. And younger firms, by sheer virtue of being younger, we know less. What's the opportunity in terms of the market? What is that global demand going to be? What is the demand from suppliers, consumers, investors, public investors going to be? And so there's a lot more unknowns. And so I think that's where the information asymmetry aspect comes into. There's, as there's more unknowns, it's possible for some with specific knowledge to gain an advantage over others. As things age over time and we start seeing maturity in business plans and revenue cycles in industries, people gain more knowledge across those different areas. And the gap between what we know and what we don't know shrinks a little bit. And so that's why it might take a little longer to exit for some other mergers or acquisitions. But part of it is that those buying companies are looking at that marketplace and seeing the maturity aspect of that company, how it's positioned and saying, well, how can I use this and create a synergy within my own existing brand? Wow. Okay. I, I, that makes sense. I was trying to, uh, I was trying to piece it together at the end there as I was reading it and I'm thinking, okay, I need to ask about this. Right. And it, it, you mentioned something that was very interesting to me that I thought about as you were mentioning, it was profitability versus ability to make money. Right, it's 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 easier to generate revenue than it is it to is. make a profit. Right, 
And it sounds to me as if maybe maybe uh, VCs aren't necessarily looking for profitability. They obviously there's in the back of their mind, but they're looking and kind of you kind of confirm that a little bit that they're more looking at uh, you can make money. You just yeah, have so to find the way at, to profit. Yeah, if we look at um, if we look at some of those factors that were involved in the exit, I think that. The theme that starts to emerge is firms that can generate large amounts of money and firms that can attract investors have a clearer pathway to an exit. And they also have a clearer path to getting more money. Because if you make money, people are more willing to invest money with you because you've shown you can make it. Ultimately, profit's the goal. And ultimately, at some point, we want companies to be profitable. So Peloton goes public, they not make a profit. Fast forward a couple of years, now we have investment companies that own shares in, in Peloton, that price is cratered from a peak of around 120 or so down to below $10. So they're clearly unhappy, right? And part of it is, well, there's no road to profitability. Yes, you're making money, you make billions of dollars in revenue, but it costs you even more to produce that revenue. Well, at some point, we want to have profit. It's easier making profit when you can make large amounts of money. And so if you can focus on creating revenue, if you can focus on what is the actual value that we're providing in terms of making money, and we can grow that, especially if we can grow that regionally, nationally, internationally, then at some point we can focus in on streamlining our operations more efficiently and making a profit. But if we can't grow money, we don't have a defined revenue business model. It's super hard to make money, which means it's gonna be super hard to make a profit, which means it's gonna be super hard to attract people to invest. I think it's kind of a cycle that we see in terms of you make money. Well, clearly you know what you're doing. So if you can make it, then you're more willing to get it. And so that's how this kind of machine and wheel keeps turning for those companies. That that is so wild to me. You can you can you can show that you can make money, but you're also spending it as fast as you're making it, or if not more, right? I'm sure Peloton is an example of one that because their 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 shares cratered or cratered, right? That yeah, they're making money, but they're also having to shovel it back into the business to keep it going, yeah. which is wild to me. Wow. So yeah, we have a lot of fun in class. <laughs> I'm sure you do. I I think this stuff is more interesting than people think. Once you get into once you get into to really knowing a little bit about it. And then you read something like what you've done here. And I just, it's all of a sudden I'm, my brain is, is overflowing and I'm sitting there going, wow, you know, this, this, it just takes you different directions. And, and that's what I love about, love about talking to people like you that did do different research streams. And I just, I, I had one last year with a guy that did NFTs. I knew nothing mm -hmm. about NFTs, but I found out a little interesting stuff about NFTs. So the last thing I wanted to ask um, of you was, where do you see, do you see this piece as a jumping off point for you going forward? Or is it, 
or is it just one piece of of a bigger scheme for you when it comes to your research interests and where you're wanting to go so in, in a short way is this what you want to keep researching and or is there more i think this is fascinating um i think that if i think of bigger picture of sport as an investment then all of a sudden it's now bringing in multiple streams of what's currently being done. And so my dissertation was on stock price movements during Olympic games, right? So that's another avenue of investment. And so we have corporate partnership aspect. We've got publicly traded market aspect. We've got the economic impact benefits and costs of public money of mega events, of events in general, of bringing in portfolios. I think all of this encompasses what we can look at in terms of sport as an investment opportunity. I think what's super interesting is looking at at it from that lens in that sport can be a business. I mean, obviously we've got sport as development and in, in providing opportunity of sport in terms of the athletic participation. We have the innumerable numerous health benefits that occur through sport. Right. But there's also sport that can be a a, a business enterprise. And I think that that's that in and of itself is an interesting aspect that I like to look at and would love to continue on, especially looking at what does funding look like for women founders. I think looking at firms that are providing capital to support would be super interesting. So there are clubs essentially that exist. And so I think a social network lens of which firms are most likely to provide capital is super beneficial for startups, for founders for other investors, for ed educators in terms of how we talk with our students who have these ideas. So I think there's a lot of opportunity in what that looks like. And there's been a lot of growth within that investment side in the last couple of years. So Victus Sports, we've got sports sports groups out of Boston looking to invest in, in sports. We've got obviously Gary Cardinal. We've got so many other, other investors that are building portfolios just looking at sports. So I think this is now turning into just it has more recognition of area of opportunity. And so I think there's a lot of potential for understanding how it's similar to other businesses, other sectors, other industries of the economy. And always with sport, what makes it unique? What makes it special? How does that emotional attachment, how does the consumer demand aspect differ to sport from, from others? So I think globally, it's, it's just a super interesting way of looking at things. And plus, when you see skyrocketing valuations, you pull up charts for classes and you get the classic, well, here's how much the NFL is making versus everyone else. Here's how much they're worth compared to everyone else. Well, yeah, and here's why the NFL owners are all saying, well, how can we open up minority investment in the NFL? Well, yeah, because it's a way for you to get some money in an asset that until you sell it, you can't generate capital from. But now I can sell a piece of it and get a couple billion dollars so yeah it makes sense now when you when you see it from that lens a couple billion dollars like well i i have one billion two billion i, I can't remember the yeah. saying but isn't there I'll a just little write a check right yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just, just write a check for it we right. got the money we're good for it we know we are if not we're going to make it anyway at some point right. so well thank you tim for talking with me today
Um, I'm looking forward to seeing what comes from you uh, in the future because this stuff is fascinating to me. I've just gotten into that area uh, with our Student Innovation Center and our Sports Innovation Institute, and and I'm loving seeing all the ideas and things that come from the students. So it was awesome talking with you. I appreciate you joining me, and hopefully we'll be talking again soon. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity and really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. You've been listening to the Sports Innovation Podcast presented by the IUPUI Sports Innovation Institute. You can check out the research conducted by the SII, get more information on the Sports Innovation Journal, and check out the research conducted by some of our students and much, much more by going to our website at sii.iupui.edu. Subscribe for the latest episodes, and thank you for listening to the Sports Innovation Podcast.